This month on Security Management Highlights. Those efforts are kind of shots in the dark because there's no assessment of their effectiveness. President Trump promised to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border, but is the infrastructure that's already there even making a difference? National Security Editor Lily Chapa brings us an update. Everything is protected by anti-theft there. Some exciting new retail loss prevention technologies to deter would-be thieves are on the horizon. ASIS Chief Global Knowledge and Learning Officer Michael Gibbs tells us more. Plus, so theoretically, if you find a vulnerability in one of those systems, you could exploit that vulnerability and take down several other systems. What the cyber attack on the Ukraine power grid teaches us about cybersecurity and the danger of a monoculture. I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and that's all coming up on this edition, June 2017, of Security Management Highlights. One of U.S. President Trump's biggest campaign promises was to build a continuous border wall between the United States and Mexico. But as national security editor Lily Chapa explains, existing technologies and infrastructure along the border could already demonstrate whether a continuous wall would be effective. Hello, Lily. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Bring us up to date, politically and otherwise, on where the conversation about a border wall between the United States and Mexico currently stands. This talk of a continuous wall along the U.S.-Mexico border has been one of President Trump's biggest campaign promises, and we've been hearing about it for quite a while. Right after he was sworn into office, Trump held meetings about the wall and insinuated that Mexico would pay for its construction. Since then, a lot of behind-the-scenes logistics have panned out. A request for proposals was issued so that contractors could submit ideas on the construction and design of the wall. Meanwhile, the stopgap budget for the rest of the year allocates $1.5 billion to support existing border security, and the 2018 budget includes another $1.6 billion towards construction of a new wall. However, that amount is lower than previous estimates and would only cover a few dozen miles of the wall, making some people wonder just how realistic building a 20,000-mile-long wall might be. Now, tactical infrastructure has been deployed by U.S. Customs and Border Protection along the U.S.-Mexico boundary, which the agency says has helped reduce illegal immigration. But reports from the U.S. Office of the Inspector General, as well as the Government Accountability Office, have weighed in on whether or not those efforts have been effective. What did their assessments conclude, Lily? You're right that CBP has a bunch of programs and technological efforts they've been using to bolster border security with the current infrastructure. But these reports found that a lot of those efforts are kind of shots in the dark because there's no assessment of their effectiveness. For example, there's strategic fencing that's put up along a stretch of the Arizona border because it was a high-traffic area for immigrants and crime. CBP found that the fencing significantly reduced the number of people crossing there, but one of the reports points out that they didn't analyze nearby unprotected stretches of land to see if those people were just crossing there instead. Because of this lack of metrics, it's kind of hard to get a grasp of the whole picture when it comes to the effectiveness of border infrastructure. And one of your sources did say that while those tactical technologies have made a difference, policymakers also need to consider that the infrastructure has a wider impact on the surrounding communities and also how it affects security. 
What did he mean by that? Well, plopping down 2,000 miles of wall in established communities is bound to be a bit jarring. I spoke with Eric Lee, who studies how policies affect trade and security between the U.S. and Mexico, and he said that the physical constraints alone are complex. The wall would run through deserts, mountains, rivers, and some privately owned land, which creates some serious legal and logistical complications. And beyond the physical reality of the wall, its construction could make cooperation between the two countries come to a screeching halt. Over the years, the U.S. and Mexico have more or less come to an understanding about life and operations along the border, and the wall would really upend that. And you write that in addition to these obstacles that Lee mentioned, the concept of a continuous wall presents, obviously, a lot of infrastructure and staffing challenges. But can you explain more? Sure. The Government Accountability Office report notes that there's already a lot of existing border infrastructure, such as roads and fencing, that are pretty difficult to maintain. And Lee points out that the money allocated to the border so far does not cover ports of entry, which have long been a source of ire for border communities. The ports allow for legitimate travel and trade between the countries, but they are often understaffed. And the potential addition of thousands more miles of wall means that the need for personnel will only increase. Well, Lily, thanks for bringing us up to date on this issue that I think has kind of been in the back of everyone's mind since President Trump got elected. Thanks so much. No problem. Thanks, Holly. Preventing shrink is a major obstacle for retail organizations around the world, and a laboratory in Florida is dedicated to figuring out the latest technologies that can help do just that. ASIS Chief Global Knowledge and Learning Officer Michael Gibbs recently took a trip to the Sunshine State to check out the goods. Hi, Mike. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Holly. Glad to be here. Well, we're excited that you've offered us another article for the magazine. Every once in a while, we're graced with uh, some of your writing. And you took a trip to visit the Loss Prevention Research Council and one of their laboratories. How did that trip come about? And what did you hope to learn before going? It actually had nothing to do with security management. We are embarking on a career pathing project at ASIS And we're trying to develop online courses to help with the trajectory for someone getting into the field who's looking to work in a certain area or to move up the ladder. And one of the things I was doing was looking at the Loss Prevention Research Council because the person who runs the council runs a course at the University of Florida on loss prevention, retail loss prevention. And we're looking at the possibility of making that into a virtual program for ASIS. Okay, that's very exciting. So how did everything else turning into the article come about? Well, Reed Hayes, who runs the Loss Prevention Research Council, was uh, giving me a briefing on what they do there. And I happened to notice that, and it's hard not to notice, that his office looks like a 7-Eleven. It's got all these retail shelves that's, that's stocked with goods like Tide detergent and baby formula and razor blades. As a matter of fact, I was kind of eyeing it up. I was like, hmm, I need some more toothpaste. I wonder if I can just take one. But everything is protected by anti-theft there. And there are signs all over the place that indicate exactly which anti-theft device is, is protecting which product. And there are racks of shirts with Florida Gators logos on it. And they have you know, anti-theft tags, ink tags. There are signs of policemen that say, you know, you're being watched. There are cameras. There's this. There's that. It's like going into a fun house of retail loss prevention. Cool. So at that point, you got into a bigger conversation with him and that turned into the article? Exactly. I was interested in the work they were doing and some of the new technologies and which were the more effective loss prevention features. Reed started to tell me about 20 stores that they have in the Gainesville area that are test research stores for them. 
Publix, Michaels, 18 other big retailers that the Lust Prevention Research Council uses to do some of their testing. And if it passes those tests, it may go to the next level. They'll bring it to other stores in the chain. And if it works, they may implement it throughout the chain. Awesome. And so to get a little more into the details, you write in the article about boosters. What are those? And yeah, like you mentioned, some of these technologies are actually very effective, new and exciting. So just which one stood out to you? Boosters are just a fancy name for shoplifters. They're people who are tend to be professional, a little more proficient. They work really quickly. They can scoop things into a bag. They often work in teams. So it's a little more professional of a shoplifter. The most interesting technology that I learned about when I was there was something called benefit denial. And people are familiar with benefit denial in the form of gift cards. If you steal a gift card from say a CVS, it won't help you much unless you activate the code and the code is activated at the counter. So you don't have access to that. Well, benefit denial is being used now. It's being placed into firmware in devices such as smartphones and printers and other electronic devices. So if you steal, say, a laptop that has this benefit denial software in it, it, it's useless to you. You'd have to have the code to enter in to make it work, and only the stores have that. So part and parcel with that, it's starting to be tested at stores. Walmart is using it on an RCA tablet called the Voyager. And RCA isn't a leading tablet manufacturer, so it was more willing to be a beta tester of the technology because it gets their product out there. It becomes front and center. And so far, the testing has been good. They haven't been able to defeat it. Part of it is the boosters don't care if... Well, they care if it works, but they'll steal it anyway if they don't know that it won't work if they take it. So part of it is putting signage out there that says, if you steal this, it's useless to you because you'll need the code to activate it. So it's two parts. It's the benefit denial and the signage that that lets people know that it's useless if they take it. So a deterrent as well as uh, an actual prevention if they steal it. So one of the ongoing prevention tests is taking place at a Best Buy uh, there in Florida. One of the stores that you you mentioned is one of many affiliated with the Loss Prevention Research Council. What's going on at Best Buy? That's somewhere I think uh, most of us can say we've shopped before and we can see why the boosters would like to take some of those expensive electronic items. The test they were doing is on the power supplies for the Apple devices. I think it's called lightning power for Apple devices. Devices. Those are high theft items because they always break and people always need to power up their phones. I don't think there's any greater need in society right now than power supply, you know, plugs and cords and everything for our smartphones everywhere you go. They are doing a test on various types of theft prevention devices. Some of them involved releasing the product one at a time off a rack. One of them, or multiple, are devices that you've got to turn a knob to release an item. And when you turn the knob, you have to turn it several times and it makes loud clicking noises. And when you make loud clicking noises, it attracts people's attention. And shoplifters hate that. Those were some of the more effective ones. Believe it or not, one of the less effective ones was when you get near one of these devices, there is motion detection. And at the end of the aisle, a TV screen pops on and you can see yourself on TV looking at these items and boosters didn't even notice that. They're so focused on the item and not being seen by anybody that they focused almost entirely on the immediate access control devices themselves or the theft control devices themselves and didn't even notice the TV screen that they appeared prominently on. So 
That was a big finding. Kind of like they say drunk drivers don't pay attention to red lights or stop signs. They just can focus on staying in between the lines. And that's what gets them in trouble. You write that signs of abandonment in sections of a store can lead to increased theft of boosters, which kind of gets back to the whole uh, crime prevention through environmental design concept I know a lot of our listeners out there are familiar with. So why is it that boosters like to take from kind of more dilapidated parts of stores? And what are retailers doing to prevent that type of loss? That's exactly right. Right, Holly, you bring up SEPTED, which is a principle that suggests that the design of a store, design of an environment can be made more or less uh, tempting to thieves or other criminals. In the case of the Best Buy, there was a back corner of the store where they were selling car stereos, which are not high volume sale products. And there were a lot of high shelves that blocked views and there were Coke cans and there was garbage on the floor and it was back in a corner and there was very little traffic. And apparently this is an area where once a booster took an item such as an Apple power supply, they didn't necessarily stash it immediately. They went back into the back corner and would stash it there. At least that's the theory. That is an attractive place because there's no staff around. There are no other customers. There are high walls. There's high product that blocks access. And the signs of dilapidation, as you put it, the signs of disuse like Coke cans and garbage indicate that people don't go around there and clean up or even watch or have any presence there. One of the things that Best Buy may do that this is being recommended by the Loss Prevention Research Council is to move some of the more choice items back in the corner instead of the things that don't sell. Of course, a principal objective of retail is to put the best things up front so you don't want to hide all your best stuff back in the corner. But you can put desirable things and you can also put uh, more staffing. You can put CCTV back there, especially monitors that show you when you're in that corner. So it makes it more obvious. You could clean up the area to show that it's not abandoned or dilapidated. So stores are doing things like that and lower the shelves. Some of the things were stacked really high. You say computer monitors, you can see what's back there. But if you lower the shelves and make you create a clear line of sight, that helps improve loss prevention. Thanks so much, Mike, for explaining more about retail loss prevention, which is obviously a critical area for our listeners. Thanks, Holly. It's been a pleasure being on your show. Recent cyber attacks demonstrate that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to protecting sensitive data and critical infrastructure. Associate Editor Megan Gates is here to talk more about her June cover story on resisting a cyber monoculture. Hi, Megan. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Holly. Thanks for having me. Before we get into the specifics of your cover story, how did you come up with the idea for this article? How did you go about putting it together? So I actually wrote originally about the Ukraine electric grid cyber attack shortly after it happened. But I didn't get to go as in-depth as I wanted to. So I was trying to sort of explore how I could cover this topic. And I went to RSA in San Francisco. And actually, Marcus Sachs, the CSO of the North American Electric Reliability Commission, NERC, was giving a presentation on electric grid cybersecurity. So I went to his presentation, which was excellent. And then I talked to him afterwards and was like, you know, would you ever be interested in doing an interview with security management on this topic? And he was like, yeah, absolutely. So we set it up and the rest is history. In the piece, you kind of pivot everything off of the power grid attack in Ukraine that occurred in 2015. Tell us more about that. Yeah. So just a quick recap, since 
this has been covered a lot, but on December 23rd, 2015, so right before Christmas, three Ukrainian regional electrical distribution centers called Oblenergos, they went down within 30 minutes of each other, cutting power to 225,000 people, and the cause was determined to be a coordinated cyber attack, the first known cyber attack to cut power via the electric grid. So there are tons of great reports out there. I used several to put my article together about, you know, what happened and specifically walks you through step-by-step of the attack but as highlights basically it was a phishing attack they used an excel spreadsheet that had malware on it and they targeted employees with it who opened it and they were able to infiltrate the Oblinergo systems and be in there for several months to learn about the system how it worked and how they could go about cutting the power using that system and that was actually one of the things that one of the reports pointed out was the attackers strongest capabilities was the fact that they were able to stay in the system so long undetected and one of the more interesting parts of the cyber attack was that once they initiated it and cut the power, they also launched a DDoS attack on the electric companies and this prevented customers from calling in and being able to report, hey, my power is out. And analysis later shows that they think that that was done just to really, you know, irk customers and make them upset that they couldn't even contact their electric company to report the outage. And since the 2015 attack, there has been another one, December 17th, 2016, at a utility on the northern side of Kiev. This one focused on transmission facilities and it shut down remote terminal units that control circuit breakers, causing a power outage for about an hour. Why do your sources say that particular country's infrastructure is such a susceptible target for hackers? Yeah, well, this was actually an interesting conversation that I had with Marcus Sachs and we were talking about monocultures. Uh, There was a big paper about the dangers of monoculture if everybody adopted the same sort of Windows operating system and what that would mean for sort of overall global cybersecurity. If you haven't read that paper, it's fascinating. I recommend it. But we were talking about, you know, how that relates to other kinds of systems. And what Marcus Sachs said is that Ukraine is former Soviet Union country. And the Soviet Union systems were set up the same they were all set up to operate in the same way and so that has carried over into to Ukraine into its critical infrastructure so theoretically if you find a vulnerability in one of those systems you could exploit that vulnerability and take down several other systems because they have the same vulnerabilities So how does this attack illustrate what could happen to critical infrastructure in the rest of the world? Would something like this ever happen in the United States, for example? Do you think that this country has a mono cyber culture? Yeah, well, I think it was definitely, you know, a big wake up call for the industry because this is sort of a doomsday scenario that people have talked about for a long time of like, what would happen? Could you actually do it? And now we know that yes, you can launch a cyber attack that will take out a portion of the electric grid. And so I spoke to Ernie Dennis, he used to work for Arbor Networks and is former military and specialized in SCADA systems and others. And they said that something like this could probably happen in Africa but less likely maybe in Europe and North America, just because of the systems we have. We have very diverse systems. We also have highly regulated systems, including regulations for cybersecurity in the electric sector. And I spoke to Brian Harrell. He's CPP, Director of Security and Risk Management of Navigant Consulting and former Director of Critical Infrastructure and Protections at NERC. And he said that North America's really done a good job of managing risk to the grid through different kinds of exercises, introducing cyber security regulations, but that doesn't mean that we stop being vigilant, especially because the U.S. Department of Homeland Security 
they've assessed that, you know, nation state activity has been detected at critical infrastructure in the U.S. networks, likely making sure that if they ever needed to, they could get into our systems. So while not likely immediately, it is a possibility. So it can't be ignored. So like any good cybersecurity article, you include some best practices and steps being taken to hopefully bolster the power grid and prevent future incidents like the ones in Ukraine. Tell us more about some of those efforts, please. Yeah, well, one of the big things right now is obviously information sharing from critical infrastructure utilities themselves between themselves and also with the U.S. federal government. Um, And right now that level of sharing is voluntary, which Marcus Sachs said, you know, was a good thing because that encourages people to to share more information than they would necessarily share if they were required to share with the government. And also right when I was finishing up this article and had turned in my final draft to our editor-in-chief, Teresa Anderson, MIT released a report on this very topic called Keeping America Safe Toward More Secure Networks for Critical Infrastructure. And this was the result of a year-long research project that asked President Trump to take action to defend U.S. critical infrastructure from cyber attacks. So after the report came out, I went to Teresa and was like, hey, I really think that I should rework part of my article to include this information because it's very important. So thankfully, she, she let me turn in my thing a little bit late so that I could include that in there, but it was mainly addressing eight key points to really bolster U.S. critical infrastructure, including training cyber professionals, um, formulating a deterrent strategy, and sort of reducing complexity and addressing system architecture. Be sure to check out Megan's story if you haven't already. It is the June cover article for security management. Megan, thanks so much for stopping by and talking to us more about your story. Thanks for having me, Holly. That does it for this month's podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Associate Editor Holly Gilbert Stowell, and be Be sure to subscribe to us on SoundCloud or iTunes so you don't miss an episode. Until next time, bye-bye.